Nats Chat is brought to you by Walters. Walk on over to Walters this Saturday night to watch the big fight. Jake Paul versus Haseem Rahman Jr. Register to receive one free Mike's Hard Lemonade. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Now the wind of the pitch. Swing and a long drive to right. Thomas back can only watch. It's gone into the second row. A home run for Derek Hall. And the Phillies have gone back to back. The 2-2. Swing a high, high fly ball left field. Hernandez drifting back at the warning track. It's got Carey and it is gone. A Citizens Bank special into the second row and straightaway left. It is 6-0 Phillies, their fourth homer of the night. And welcome to Nats Chat for Saturday, August 6th, 2022, along with MassInSports.com Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. A wonderful week for the Nats. Got even more wonderful on Friday night as they flirted with being perfect gamed and saw their most important starting pitcher on the Major League Active roster right now get shellacked once again. We hope that you are having a better week than the Nats are having. A 7-2 loss at the Philadelphia Phillies on Friday night in Game 2 of a four-game series. The Nats this season, now a Major League worst, 36-72. and So they have exactly twice as many losses as the team has wins. The Nats have 54 games left in this 2022 regular season and are on pace to win 54 games. Also, the Nats this season now are 9-40 and against the National League East. Yes, you heard that right, 9-40. and Mark, I guess we can say that at least the Nats on Friday night did not get perfect gamed or no hit because for quite some time, it felt like either of those two things, well, I guess maybe both of those things could happen. Well, you know, as Davey likes to say, it's the little things, isn't it? (laughs) So at least they didn't get no hit for the first time in team history. They still have that streak going. Thank God for that. Although I got to tell you, I'm sort of mentally prepared for us to have several more nights like this before the season is over. You can think about the types of pitchers they're still going to be facing and the types of lineups they're going to be putting out there. And I would not be surprised at all if there are a few more that at least flirt with the possibility of it happening. That's just the sad reality of, uh, you know, where they are right now. You know, you mentioned the record. They're officially two thirds of the way through the season now on pace to go 54 and 108. And here's the one that struck me. I've been waiting till it got to this point where the math works out like this. They would now have to play 500 ball the rest of the way, 27 and 27, to avoid 100 losses. 
Now, I mean, we've known for a while they're going to be a 100 lost team, but that's just how far beyond that point they are. They'd have to play 500 ball the rest of the way to not lose 100 games. So, yeah, they're going to lose 100. They're going to lose probably closer to 110. And you see what the state of this lineup is right now. And it's like, I know they are going to win games. and We've seen them win some games this week. But boy, there are nights when they just look helpless up there. There are. And uh, this certainly was one of those nights. And, you know, they made Kyle Gibson look like uh, Roy Halladay at his peak. I mean, Kyle Gibson is not having some spectacular season, but he sure looked really good on Friday night. Well, before we get into the gory and depressing details, here's something that maybe will make you feel at least somewhat happy. James Wood on Friday night made his Fredericksburg Nationals debut. The Fred Nats uh, did lose at the down Eastwood Ducks 10-9. James Wood is your starting center fielder and number three batter for the Fred Nats. Four for six with three RBI. So there you go. There's something, right? That's like a shot at Jack Daniels to try to numb the pain uh, as we navigate through one of the more brutal weeks in recent Nats history. I mean, this game in so many ways captured so many things about the Nats offensively this season. You had the Phillies on Friday night smashing five home runs. You had the Nats on Friday night scoring their two runs on an RBI sack fly and an RBI ground out. I mean, if that doesn't capture the Nats offense and the Nats season overall, I don't know what does. Yeah, I mean, we're going to get to Josiah Gray here, but he gave up five hits and four of them were homers, you know, and this has kind of been a recurring theme for him. He doesn't really get hit that hard in terms of like long sustained rallies. He gets beat by the home run and sometimes by the walk. This is... The difference between the Nationals and just about everybody else in baseball, we talked about it the night before when they had, what, 10 singles out of their 11 hits. And they barely had any hits in this game, but they were all singles. And when the opposition is able to hit the ball in the air with some authority, this is what happens. They've got to find a way to get the ball in the air, especially at a ballpark like that. You just have to do it. And yes, I mean, if you look at the strike zone plot for Kyle Gibson. Everything is down in the zone. It's breaking balls. It's change-ups. All this stuff. There are pitches that are designed to try to get to get you to hit it into the ground. But your job as a hitter is either to fight off those pitches or take them if they're not in the strike zone and get something you can do damage with. And then when you get one of those pitches, do something with it. They just have not consistently at all been able to take pitches that are belt high and above and actually do damage with them. That's been a huge problem this year. There's no question about it. The Nats on Friday night, just three hits to go with two walks, one for six with runners in scoring position. Two of the three hits came from Luis Garcia. Uh, He had two singles. All three of the Nats hits on Friday night were singles. Uh, Garcia, in fact, had the single that broke up the no-hit bid uh, by Kyle Gibson, an opposite field single to left field uh, to end the no-hit bid, that coming in the top of the seventh. But yeah, let's get to what was the headline item in this game. And that was Josiah Gray. And, you know, I think a lot of us, I know I did, you didn't feel good about this game, knowing what the Phillies are capable of doing, knowing what Josiah Gray is prone to do, which is give up the home run, and knowing how things have been going for Josiah Gray lately, and that is not well. And things did not go well for Josiah Gray on Friday night. Six runs in four innings. He gave up five hits. Like Mark said, four of the five hits were home runs. The other hit was a triple, although it was a triple that should not have been a triple. Uh, We'll get to that here. But also for Josiah Gray, issued three walks. He over his four innings threw 79 pitches, 46 strikes, 
versus 33 balls. He allowed four runs in the bottom of the first, during which he gave up three home runs. Gave up a one-out solo homer to Reese Hoskins to left field. Gave up a two-out triple to JT Realmuto on a 1-2 pitch. The triple should not have been a triple. Should have been a single. Victor Robles made a really bad play. Allowed the ball to bounce in front of him okay. Uh, and then the ball got by him and rolled all the way to the center field wall. Uh, but then Gray did not respond well to this. Gave up a two-out, two-run homer to Nick Castellanos to left field to put the Phillies up 3-0. And, and then Josiah Gray gave up a two-out solo homer to Derek Hall to right field for a 4 nothing Phillies lead, despite Hall having been down at 1.02. And then Gray in the bottom of the third gave up two runs. Lead-off five-pitch walk of Reese Hoskins. One-out, two-run homer by JT Realmuto to left for a 6 nothing Phillies lead. And that was the game. And you knew that that was the game. You knew that the game was over. Really, you knew that the game was over after the first inning, but especially after the Nats were down 6 nothing after three innings. I mean, this isn't new with Josiah Gray anymore. The mechanical issues, the giving up of home runs. But here's where we are now with Gray. As much as we've talked about, you know, more good than bad, 20 starts now this season, ERA of 492. He's given up the most homers in the majors at 28. Things overall are not going well for him this season. No. In the big picture, you're right. And the reason is that the bad starts are really bad. The good starts have been very good. And what's funny is his last start in Philadelphia was the great one when he struck out 12. It was just about a month ago that he did that. And this one was, of course, nothing at all like that. But it's the home runs. Okay, 28 of them now allowed in 20 starts. Remember last year, Patrick Corbin, what a disaster it was for him. He finished with 37, which shattered the club record, which was previously 31. Well, Josiah Gray's on pace if he was to keep pitching every fifth day the rest of the season. He's now on pace to give up 42. That's a staggering total of home runs to allow, even in this day and age of home runs being so common in baseball. And it's like every mistake he makes up in the zone is a home run. He doesn't give up singles, doesn't give up doubles. He gets beat with long fly balls that leave the yard. And you could see the common theme. Most of them are fastballs. I think one of them was on a slider in this game, but they were all up in the zone. He's got to be able to get the ball down in the zone. I was just talking earlier, Kyle Gibson, everything he was throwing down in the zone, making them hit ground balls. I don't know if this is mechanically he can't get it down there or philosophically he's trying to stay up in the zone. But his fastball is not good enough to be up in the zone, I don't think. I think we've seen that now. If he leaves a fastball belt high or chest high and it's anywhere near the strike zone, he gets into trouble. He's got to be able to get it down the zone. And he's got to, at some point here, be throwing some change-ups. He threw zero change-ups in this game. You've heard Davey Martinez harp all year, not just on him, but a lot of guys on their staff, throw more change-ups. When you're only going fastball, slider, curveball, that's not enough variety. You need something to keep the hitters honest, and that is a pitch that breaks down, ideally gets you ground balls. I know he's a fly ball pitcher. It may not be his forte, but in addition to the mechanics that we've talked about and the landing foot and all that, to me, that's the biggest thing he's got to do. He's got to develop enough confidence to throw change up because you have to keep the hitters honest, and he's not doing that right now. Davey keeps like begging his pitchers to throw more change-ups, and yet the pitchers continue to not throw more change-ups. I don't understand that. I don't get it. Like, is he not conveying this to them? Are they just tuning him out? Like, does he need to be more forceful with them? It's very odd. 
But, you know, you look at Josiah Gray now, if you just go month by month in his season, April, he had an ERA of 405. May, he had an ERA of 574. June, he had an ERA of 113. He had a really good June. But in July, he had an ERA of 675. And now in his first start in this month of August, he gave up six runs in four innings. I mean, there have been good starts. You know, we've talked about the good and there is good with him. It's not like he's a lost cause. But, you know, if you're being objective and honest about things, the season is not going well. His ERA is almost five, 20 starts into a season. And what was the number one problem for him coming into this season, the home run, is even more of a problem right now. You know, it kind of reminds you of Patrick Corbin. Things aren't just not the same. They're worse with Corbin. And with Gray, you could argue they're actually kind of worse. Now, of course, the difference is Gray is young and it takes some pitchers time. So, you know, you don't tap out on him or give up on him or anything like that. But, you know, with all of our conversations recently about drafting and player development and guys getting worse and not better, what we are seeing from Josiah Gray this season is a pitcher who seems to be doing worse, not better. And I think that is jarring, especially given the events of earlier this week from a Nationals perspective. Sure. Now, I think also something to keep in mind here, and I'll be interested if it's something that the Nationals try to do anything with, is the workload. You know, they've talked all along about trying to make sure that they don't push him too far and saying they have to cap him at some point, whether that means shutting him down at some point in September, or even if it means giving him a break along the way and then trying to bring him back after that. Because he hasn't pitched a whole lot, it's his first full big league season. They're very aware of that. I wonder if there is some fatigue starting to set in 20 starts into this. I mean, you would hope that's not the case, but you wouldn't be surprised if that is part of this. Remember, he got a little extended break around the all-star break. He pitched early before the break, and then he was the last guy to come out of the break. They used that as a chance to give him some rest, but maybe he needs more of it. And I don't know if they're in a position to be able to do that right now because they don't have a lot of other options. But before this is all said and done, I do wonder if they're going to say, hey, we need to give him a break or even shut him down before the end of the season because we think it's a little too much for him. And just to try to prevent him from ending up with some really ugly numbers that could you know, cloud the thought of what this whole season has been for him. Now, he's young. There's plenty of stuff he's going to learn, go along the way. I want to, just because you mentioned the thing about the changeups, I want to bring this up because I, I agree. I've been asking this to my myself, like they know that they need to throw more and they don't. So what's going on? I think some of this is young pitchers at the big league level who aren't fully confident in that pitch's ability. And they think, well, if I don't throw it well, it just ends up being like a BP fastball right over the plate and it's going to get hammered. And when you're at AAA, you can say, okay, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to throw 15 changeups tonight no matter what because it's AAA and they're not worried about the results. I think they're so worried about the results up here, they don't want to do that. But you know what? It's not working with the other stuff. The team's on pace to lose 108 games. If ever there's a time where you can get away with just trying things out at the big league level, this is it. I don't think anybody would fault them for doing that. So maybe that is the message that has to be conveyed both to the pitchers and to the catchers who are calling these pitches. You know what? Don't think about the results tonight. Go out. We want you to do this. We want you to work on that. And at the end of the night, whatever the results are, so be it. But it's going to help you be a better pitcher in the long run. I also do wonder about the mechanical stuff with Gray. I know that it's not easy to rework a pitcher's delivery in season. I understand that. But if the mechanical issues really are a big part of the problem, would it be so terrible if you tried to work on them at least somewhat as the season goes on? I mean, you know, you have multiple days between starts you know, why not try to work on some things, especially given that the results of these games from win-loss perspectives don't matter? I mean, 
it seems like kind of a waste if the mechanical issues really are a huge part of his struggles. And he's set to make, what, 10 or 12 starts the rest of the season. Why punt away those 10 or 12 starts? Why not get to work on the mechanical stuff now so that you can maybe hit the ground running come the offseason and spring training and then be really good to go for next year? I just feel like it's such a waste. He's got like a third of his season left, and we're going to just keep going down this path of, well, he has mechanical issues, but we can't fix them till the offseason. That just doesn't feel right. Yeah, and maybe that's where a break in here would come in handy because now you could work on some of those things as you're recovering from it. Maybe go, you know, make a few minor league rehab starts. I mean, let's also be honest here. I'm not saying I see this happening, but in theory, Josiah Gray could be optioned to the minors and work on things down there. Now, again, they need to have better options to replace him. And I don't know if they have that. And I don't know if they just don't think that's a good look to be doing that to him, but that is something they have at their disposal if they were to choose to do that. He's a young pitcher who has not been up and down very much, so they could do that if it came to that. Just to go back to the point about shutting him down or resting him, so he's made 20 starts. He has only thrown 106 innings. I mean, he's not lasting for that long in these games. I don't know how they necessarily monitor workload, but it's not like his innings total is that high. So I would like to think that he could end up, you know, making his 30, 32 starts because the innings total is only going to get up to like, I don't know, 150, 160, maybe 170 if things really start to pick up. So, you know, you'd like to think that he could handle that this year. But yeah, I mean, the results here lately have not been good and you don't have like a great feeling now when he goes into games. I mean, I don't know about you, but going to this game on Friday night, it felt to me like something like what happened happened. You know, bandbox of a ballpark, a lineup that hits home runs, a pitcher who gives up home runs. I don't know that anyone was really shocked by what we saw in that first inning. And that was a wretched first inning, but I don't know that it caught too many people by surprise. No, bad matchup, bad ballpark, all those things. Yeah, even though he was good, like I said, against them last time out. So yeah, I did kind of go into this one with a little bit of a thinking that that didn't set up very well for him. But look, he's not the future ace of the team, but he is, by all accounts, going to be a significant part of this team and their rotation moving forward. They need to, whatever it takes, they need to get the most out of him, whether that means shutting him down, whether it means pushing him through this. They've got to figure that out. As far as the innings go, the innings are one component of it, but they also do look at the number of starts and just, we don't get into this a lot and they don't share a lot of these details with us, but I know they do a lot of actually like biometrics And they keep track of a lot of different things with these guys and they are studying them and they feel like it's helping them to identify if there's something physically different. If a guy's arm angle drops, if et cetera, et cetera, then they might be more concerned about the possibility of an injury. So they try to be proactive with those things. So I don't know if they've seen any signs like that biometrically that says that he's showing signs of fatigue, but that would be something else they'd watch in addition to the, you know, actual innings count. Yeah. It makes you think too. You know, we talk about Kay Cavalli and Cole Henry and Mackenzie Gore, and might we see all of those guys pitching at the major league level as this season goes on? And hopefully we do, but, you know, hopefully they do well because if they come up and they get rocked and Gray is getting rocked, I mean, that's going to make you feel worse about things, not better. And that's always a possibility. Like, it would be lovely if all of those guys are up at the major league level and pitching well come September, but. If you don't feel like that's going to happen as an organization, I would be tentative to bring them up just because how bad of a look would that be if the future comes up and the future doesn't look so good, at least not initially? Like that could be rough sailing come the month of September. So we'll see. 
We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Here it is. And it's inside and Robles is hit by the pitch. He's hit on the left elbow guard. It's not exactly Jose Tabata. But that's how the Nationals get their first base runner, a hit by pitch. Robles hit by a pitch for the ninth time this season on a fastball running up and in, and it got him on the elbow guard. I mentioned the Victor Robles boo-boo. Like we said on the last installment of the podcast, it's always something with Victor Robles. There's always a Victor Robles adventure, game in and game out. And we actually had multiple Robles adventures on Friday night. So he actually ended the perfect game bid by Kyle Gibson. Robles in that top of the seventh drew a leadoff hit by pitch. That's like classic Nats right there. How do you end a perfect game bid? Well, a hit by pitch, not by a, a hit or a homer. No, a hit by pitch. It's what they do. Victor Robles with the hit by pitch to spoil the perfect game attempt by Kyle Gibson. But yeah, that bad defensive play in that four-run first, allowing the ball to bounce in front of him, okay. And then the ball gets by him and goes all the way to the wall for that two-out triple by JT Realmuto. I mean, obviously, Victor Robles knows better. That's not an easy play to make. I understand that. But man, was that a costly play. Swing and a line drive, center field. Robles coming in, has to slam the brakes on and can't make the play. Let's it go by him all the way to the fence. Rounding second, heading for third is Real Muto, and he'll stop there. Yeah, and he just got caught in between. He's going all out thinking he has a shot at it, and then he realizes, no, I don't, and he pulls up. But once you do that, either you have to make that decision a split second sooner, or once you make that decision, your number one priority is not to catch the ball, it's to knock it down and keep it in front of you. Become an infielder at that point. Let it bounce off your chest, whatever it takes. And instead, he pulls up and kind of tries to catch it and kind of looked like it slipped almost like under his armpit or something like that. So obviously not good technique on that. Now, if I remember right, the next batter hit a home run, so it didn't really make a difference whether it was a single or a triple, but still not a good look for him. And the hit by pitch, to me, that was like the perfect way for this to end, not just with a hit by pitch, but with a Victor Robles hit by pitch, because that's what he does. And it did bring into my mind, of course, the famous hit by pitch to break up a perfect game with two outs in the ninth, Jose Tabata leaning into Max Scherzer's pitch to get on base and ruin that attempt at history. This was not that. Robles did not lean into it. It was, you know, he didn't go out of his way to get out of it, but that pitch was running in on him and it was a legitimate hit by pitch. But boy, if that had actually had any controversy to it, uh, wow, look out. Well, 
I will say this. I would not have blamed Victor one bit for doing that because for this team this season, you do what you have to do to avoid indignity. And so if you have to pull a Jose Tabata, you go ahead and do that, Victor Robles. I would not have had an issue with that. So I mentioned that the Phillies hit five home runs in this game on Friday night. The fifth and final bomb was, in fact, a shore bomb. Victor Rano in the bottom of the seventh gave up a one-out solo home run to Kyle Schwarber to dead center, put the Phillies up 7-0, 419 feet per stat cast. Kyle Schwarber now this season has 34 home runs. He is second in the majors in homers with those 34 home runs. I think it's interesting with Kyle Schwarber because he was a good hitter with the Cubs. He was kind of up and down. And he comes to the Nats last season, and he's not very good initially. Then he has one of the greatest months that you'll ever see a player have, his June of 2021. And when the Nats traded him, you know, first of all, you said to me you had to do that, right? Fire sale. He was coming off an injury, too. But, you know, I also kind of said to myself, you know, we probably have seen the best of Kyle Schwarber. Like, what we saw in June, that's not really who Kyle Schwarber is. Like, he's a good player. He's not that good. Well, he really has been an excellent power hitter over these last two seasons now. Schwarber last year, great job with the Nats for the entirety of his 2021 season. He slugged 554, had an OPS in 928. And now this season for the Phillies, 34 home runs, a 500 slugging percentage. He has kind of found something over these last two seasons, kind of found it with the Nats. And to his credit, he has stayed at a pretty elite level in terms of hitting home runs over these last two seasons. Well, and that's the key. It's the home runs. He's not doing a lot else, okay? I know you don't care about batting average. He's hitting 204, and the OPS is 809. If you lead the league in home runs and your OPS is only 809, you're not doing much else other than home runs. You're kind of doing a Dave Kingman, Rob Deere kind of thing. Now, he's better than that, of course, but he is... I thought all along it was a great fit for him in that ballpark. And you got to say, I mean, Kevin Long was his hitting coach with the Nationals last year, and he's his hitting coach with the Phillies this year. And as we know, Kevin Long, we've discussed, is the launch angle guy. And so those two are a good fit together, and they are making the most of his God-given power. Now, he's not doing a whole lot else, and it's funny because he still hits leadoff, and it's so unconventional. It doesn't make sense in a lot of ways. Especially in a lineup with so many thumpers, you'd probably like to have somebody who gets on base a little more regularly, although he drew a walk in this one. But he's got seven now against the Nats in only 10 games. So he and Austin Riley have hit the most against them. Riley's done seven, but that's in 13 games. It's something to watch. I think they even mentioned it on the Apple TV broadcast. I was glad to hear them mention this because I don't think it gets enough. I don't think it's pointed out enough by people who don't really follow the Nationals day in and day out. That injury last year, he suffered the hamstring right when everything was going so well, both for him and for the team. That really kind of set into motion this domino of so many things that went wrong for them in July. But if Schwarber doesn't pull his hamstring, it really could have altered a lot about what happened for them the rest of that month and maybe beyond. It could have. You know, I think you also could say that if he doesn't go nuclear in June, things would have already been pretty bad because he kind of saved them in June with how hot that he got. And if he doesn't reach a level that very few players ever reach, I mean, that's one of the greatest months I've ever seen a player have. That was incredible. Like every game, the guy was homering, leading off games, leading off innings with home runs. So it's like, if not for that extreme good, you know, we don't know how bad uh, last season would have been and how quickly last season would have entered 
into that territory of bad. We've had some departures from the Nats organization over the last 24, 48 hours. So we know that the Nats are releasing Alcides Escobar. We on Friday learned that D. Strange Gordon has asked for and been granted his release from AAA Rochester. This was kind of under the radar and, you know, this wasn't like a big deal or anything. But so the Nats in June designated Strange Gordon for assignment, ultimately released him. They actually brought him back on a minor league contract a few weeks ago, but he asked to be released by AAA. And then during the game on Friday night, the Nats announced that pitcher Josh Rogers has elected for free agency. Uh, You may recall the Nats on July 22nd brought Rogers back from his rehab assignment, reinstated him. He'd been out with a left shoulder impingement, but they brought him back but optioned him to Rochester. And I guess he sees with Mackenzie Gore here or he just sees with a lack of opportunity here. He wants to try to find opportunity elsewhere. So this went way under the radar because it happened when all those other moves were happening the other day with the trades. They had to clear some 40-man spots for the changes, and he was DFA'd. It was a footnote in all of our stories, and you know, apologies if anybody missed it. There was so much else going on that we couldn't make a bigger deal out of it. So they designated him for assignment. So what this means is that he cleared waivers. Now, he could have stayed in the organization and no longer been on the 40-man, but decided to uh, to depart and become a free agent. But you know, I think it's pretty telling – there certainly have been opportunities here in the last month where if they wanted Josh Rogers on their big league staff, they could have done it either as a starter or as a reliever. And remember, they still have no left-handers in their bullpen. So I do think go all the way back to the end of spring training, and he's the last guy cut, and Annabelle Sanchez makes the rotation or is supposed to make the rotation instead of him. They end up bringing Rogers back because of Sanchez's injury. But there have been a series of steps since April – that have led you to believe the Nationals were not nearly as high on Josh Rogers as maybe he thought they would have been, or we all thought they were after he had that nice September for them last year. It's unfortunate, nice guy. He pitched well for them at times, but it was clear that he's not in their plant. So that's why he's now looking for work elsewhere. Yeah. And obviously it says something, a team this starving for pitching doesn't think highly of you. Like that says you probably should look for employment elsewhere. So, you know, Rogers did actually a pretty good job for them last season but things obviously did not work out for him this season. All right, so we've got a lot of great emails over the last few days. We thought we'd hit on at least some of them here on this installment of the podcast. You can always email us, natschatpodcast at gmail.com. This email from Andrew Red. let's just hope if slash when the new owners take over, they pour tons of money into player development and new technology so we won't be stuck in the Stone Ages. Other baseball podcasts I listen to Talk about the Nationals' archaic way of running things and how far the Nats are behind teams, much less the very high-level teams like the Astros, Yankees, Dodgers, and Rays. So his point is, it's not just that the Nats are behind those teams, but behind other teams. So it's always tough to assess this. It's clear the Nats aren't on the level of a Houston or a Tampa Bay or the Dodgers or the Yankees in terms of analytics and technology and information. Have you heard, though, that they are actually like, you know, bottom third, bottom fourth of MLB when it comes to that stuff? Yeah, I think going into the season, there was a lot of that talk. And you had some additions over the winter going into the season with more player development people. And included in that were more analytics and especially on the minor league level to do that in a way that they hadn't uh, necessarily done it before. I think they were just not financially investing in that as much as other teams were. Now, you know, they're still trying to play catch up, I think, in a lot of ways. And the question would be, 
are they now doing it enough and it's just going to take some time till we see the results of it? Or is there still more that they need to do? I don't really know the answer to that. It's not my area of expertise. It's not something they talk about a lot and not being around the minor leaguers myself. It's hard to know, you know, what they're getting out of it all. But we know player development has been a huge issue for them. Uh, they did make some changes, including putting Dijon Watson in charge now of the farm system. Let's see. They've got some pretty good toys down in that system now in terms of elite talent. It's going to be a while till we know for sure, but you would hope that you start to see the results of that. But I would also hope, let's think about it this way. Okay, you've got new owners coming in and a team that, as we know, is does not have a lot of payroll commitments beyond this year other than Steven Strasburg and Patrick Corbin. Do we think they're going to come in and all of a sudden be a top 10 payroll in the next year or two? Probably not because there's no reason to go overspend when you don't have enough talent anyways to compete. So if you're not spending at the big league level, maybe there is some extra spending now going down to the minor league level and these other ancillary areas that need improvement. I'll be interested to see if there's any discussion of that or commitment to that. And I think fans can understand, hey, the major league payroll may need to be down here for another year or two. But that doesn't mean they can't be spending the money they have on uh, in other areas to help make them better. Yeah, I think when it comes to the Nats being behind in analytics, one of the important questions is, has Mike Rizzo wanted to do more and just has not been given the budget to do more? You know, like, has this been more of a learner's thing than a Rizzo thing? Or have the Nats not been enough in on analytics because Rizzo just isn't either a true champion of that or doesn't get that or that's just not his thing. And, you know, he is stuck to more of his scouting background when it comes to running the organization. So we don't know. But, you know, in fairness to Mike, it is possible he has wanted to do more in the Department of Analytics, but just has not been given the budget to do more. Because you got to keep in mind, like when it comes to doing analytics, right, you say, well, what does that exactly mean? So you have to have a staff. You have to bring in people. You can't just have like three or four people sitting in the corner. You have to have like 5, 10, 15 people. The Dodgers, the Yankees are very well staffed with analytics people. And you got to think about who these people are. These are bright young minds coming from Ivy League schools. You can't pay them $30,000 a year. Like You have to offer them competitive salaries. These are people who could go work on Wall Street, could be doing all kinds of things. They end up choosing to work in baseball because they have a passion for sports, but you do have to properly compensate them. And so if you're not given a proper budget from ownership, Good luck trying to keep up with the Yankees and the Dodgers, et cetera. And that's another aspect of all this. If you are behind, it's not just enough to do enough. Now you have to do more to try to catch up to those other teams. This really is an arms race in terms of data and information and interpretation of the information. And that's what concerns me about the Nats. It's that it's not just that they are behind. It's that in order to catch up to these other teams, they got to really put the pedal to the metal and that's not easy to do. And I don't know that we have indication that they are doing that. And if they don't do that, I think it's going to be hard to be good again soon. I, I don't think you can play this any other way anymore. Like you've got to be on board with this stuff. And really, you got to try to be at the forefront of this stuff. Listening to you talk about that, I'm reminded of what the Orioles did over the last five years. I mean, they tore it all down. They had a team that was going to the playoffs several times. They tear it all down. And within that, they fire the general manager, fire the manager. They cleaned house and started all over again with a very analytically based GM and started a process that is only now starting to actually bear some fruit at the major league level. But they did it very differently now from where they were back then. In the Nationals case, and I'm going a little off topic here, but I, I was thinking about this earlier today. You still have the core people in charge that have been all along. 
and that's Mike Rizzo and his scouts and veteran people who he's worked with for a long time. So as we discuss, like, what should the future be and how much should we hold Rizzo accountable and all that, obviously, you have to lay some blame at his feet for the situation the organization got into in the last two years in which they felt the need to trade away Max Scherzer, Trey Turner, and now Juan Soto. But like we've said before, once you've now committed to doing that and you've told him, go ahead and make these trades start all over again, don't you now have to give him the opportunity to see it through? And so you're talking a years-long process until that comes through, except what we're just talking about now, his style of building his organization is not going to be anything new age. It's going to be the way that he's done it in the past. He's brought that up about building this the way they did in 09 and 10 and 11 to then get a team that won in 12. So I don't know that you can have that kind of massive overhaul in an organization and their philosophy when you still have the same people in charge of it. But I don't know that you can make a change of the people at the top when you've now already tasked them with rebuilding it and they've already started that process. Yeah. And that's where I think new ownership could really be a factor here because you could see a new owner, especially if that new owner is big into analytics coming in and saying, all right, it's time for a major change. Like I think that is possible. I mean, especially with Mike only under contract through next season. You know, I think about the changes that the Nats did make to their front office last season or last offseason. And probably the biggest one was the promotion of this guy to John Watson to director of player development. He was already in the organization. He spent the last five seasons as a special assistant to Mike Rizzo. So this isn't like, well, they brought in this new guy and he can really shake things up. Like, no, he's been here for a while and he has been around baseball for a while. Now, he was with the Dodgers. He led the Dodgers player development system from 07 through 14, but he was there before, you know, a guy like Andrew Friedman was there. So it's not like he was a part of the new brain trust that took over the Dodgers. He was there, stayed for a while, and then was gone. So I don't really view Watson as like someone who could change things. Maybe he's good and he helps, but he's more like in line with Rizzo than he is like some new brainy type who was brought into the organization to bump things up. You saw with a lot of like the coaching changes, it was a rearranging of people as opposed to a bringing in of new people. So they are still, in theory, trying to do it the way that they have been doing it. I mentioned this not long ago. It's only this season that the Nats are having this guy, David Higgins, a member of the Nats analytics department, uh, be full travel with the team and be around the clubhouse a lot. Other teams have been doing this for years. That the Nats just now in 2022 are starting to do this, that really strikes me as like, how behind the curve are you? That you're doing something now that other teams were doing years ago. To anyone who's read the great book, Big Data Baseball by Travis Sawchuk about the Pittsburgh Pirates, the Pirates were doing this like 10 years ago. They brought in someone from the analytics department to travel with the team and relay information to players. And, you know, it's tricky with the Nets, right? Because they did things for a certain way for a long time, and that way worked. So, like, why should you change everything if you're having eight consecutive winning seasons and five playoff seasons and winning the National League East four times and winning a World Series? Like, why should you change your ways? But, of course, the great organizations are proactive, and you don't change things when you have to change things. You change things, or at least you alter or modify things as time goes on so that you're ahead of the problems before they really pop up. And what seems to be the case is that the Nats did not do that. They kind of stuck to their way. And the way has fallen apart. And now it's like, okay, now what do we do? Yeah, uh, it's well said all around. But I think you make a good point there, which is a lot of these people in positions of importance with them have had success in the past. And they believe that 
the way they did it is the right way to do it and can be successful again. And I think if you were to ask a lot of them, not everybody, but a lot of them and in private, not just in public, and you said, why is the franchise in the state that it's in right now? They wouldn't say it's because they weren't doing enough analytically. They would say because our roster got old and some guys got hurt that were very important to us and we didn't do a good enough job developing minor leaguers to come and replace them. So get us younger now, more young players, develop them well, bring them up here, and we know how to win once they are ready for that. I don't think you're going to hear a lot of them say, no, the reason that we're going to lose 108 games this year is because we don't do enough analytically. Now, that may be true that that's a reason for it, but I don't think a lot of people in the organization would point to that as a primary reason for it. Yeah, and, and I understand that. And, you know, we say analytics, again, it's become this buzzword. It means different things to different people. But I would argue one of the reasons you haven't done a great job of developing players is because you haven't been as in on quote unquote analytics as you should be. You know, like I think it's kind of like you say potato, I say potato. I think all of these things are tied together. And when we say be more in on analytics, nobody is saying that all you should do is read fan graph stats and that's how you judge players. No one is saying that. It's just being at the forefront of data and technology and information and relaying this stuff to your players and having it be a part of your culture. Like that's what we're talking about. You you meld the worlds of scouting and information together as the Dodgers do so well, as the Yankees do so well, as the Braves do so well. No one is saying to bring in a bunch of nerds who've never played sports, okay, and just like listen to what they say. No one is saying that. So yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, th- this is the thing with the Nats. They are bad. I think it's such an interesting time though in the franchise because it's like you're broken. How do we fix you? You know, we as men, we love to fix things. And so like that's part of the conversation here. How do we fix the Nats? And there is no simple, easy answer to that. Get your tool belts out, everybody. Go into the shed, get it all together. We're spending the weekend working on the house, trying to rebuild it and fix this thing up. Somebody call Bob Vila. Uh, We could use his help right now. You tell us what you think. Hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can email the podcast, NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com, including if you'd like to sponsor the Nats Chat Podcast, hit up Tim Shover's NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. Get yourself a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt at NatsChatPodcast.com dot square dot site, including a secret weapon Paolo Espino t-shirt. You know, we didn't mention this off the last game. He actually technically got credit for a complete game for that game, which I think is ridiculous for a four and a half range shortened game. You get a complete game. But for our guy, Paolo, good for him. He got a complete game for how poorly he pitched on Thursday night. He's on the league leaders now in complete games with one. (laughs) It's amazing. He's got the CG with the one. It's not a fat zero. It's a one for Paolo Espino uh, in the CG category. So good for him. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. Like we said, 54 games left in this national season. We'll see what is in store for them and for us. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi, and we'll talk to you next time on the Nats chat podcast. There are 162 games in a Major League Baseball season, and the players have a saying. Every team's going to win 54 games. Every team's going to lose 54. It's what you do with the other 54 games that counts.